0: if you think about it, our world is made up of stories. Stories which inspire empathy, challenge our deepest beliefs and alter our perspective. The question here is, what stories do you believe in? Think deeply about that for a moment because the stories you choose to believe in form your worldview. Your lens of worldview can either limit you or empower you. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Wings Podcast Season 1, Episode 1. We are here to bring to you stories of women from around a community which will move you, make you think, and inspire you to act and do more. So this is your host, Simran Sachdeva and without further ado, let's get started. Listening to season one, episode one of Wings podcast, and today we have with us somebody who has inspired us through her own story as well as story told by her of others. She is Gurmeet and we don't think we could have found somebody more apt to begin this challenge with. This is one of the most candid and honest episodes, and we discuss from anything to everything we could get our hands on, be it literature, politics, feminism, studying abroad, and also as a bonus, we have a quick rapid fire at the end. So, without further ado, let's get started with just a quick introduction before. Gurmehar Kaur is the author of Small Acts of Freedom and the Young and the Restless, published by Penguin Random House India. She is a social activist and ambassador for Postcards for Peace, a non-profit charitable organization. Gurmehar Kaur co-founded Citizens for Public Leadership, an independent non-partisan movement focused on advocating progressive public policy in India. Kaur was listed by Time magazine as a next-generation leader in 2017. She is currently pursuing her master's from Oxford University. It would be great if you could, hi. So it would be great if you can begin with a short introduction of
1: yourself. Hi everyone, I'm Kurmahal Kaur. I am a writer uh, and I'm doing my master's right now at Oxford University. <laughs> okay, that was a short one. <laughs> but i had a longer one <laughs> I like, my talk. I feel like, I feel like this is, I, even when somebody else introduces me, I just, I'm just like so embarrassed of it. Uh, Sam so Markus is like, ah, I go to college and sometimes I write so I don't, uh, I get very awkward when people introduce to me <laughs> Okay Right Okay,
0: but I think you've done a lot of great things and like they deserve to be in the introduction, but we will put it <laughs> How are you? Um Okay, so we'll begin with writing and you know, so specifically, uh, we proceed with women and writing, as the, also our organization's focus is on women empowerment and mostly with issues that teenagers face. So, uh, in the 19th century, we know women's writing wasn't even considered worthy, and even when they were trying to write and come up, come up, they used to use pseudonyms, which so that people don't discard their writing altogether. So women's writing book not really been something that has been celebrated or people even accepted. Two centuries passed forward, what do you think are the challenges faced by female writers in the publishing industry today and any challenges you also faced when you were beginning your writing career?
1: Hmm. I think one of the biggest challenges for female writers would be, especially the kind of writing that I do, uh, and especially the kind of, uh, especially the kind of work that I do. Often, it's, often it's assumed that women writers will write about more v- female-oriented things, um, and and it, and w- which is often like you know topics about feminism, topics about topics that revolve around female life, and and it's also and I think there's a this is this is a reason. I guess. I guess. It, I guess. Women prefer to write about uh, their personal life and personal um, history. So I think the stereotype of women be, women being um conform. You, you know, the stereotype kind of. Uh, what's the word I would use for it? But like the stereotype, stereotype kind of just. Binds women in a space, or just conforms them in a space where it's expected of them to. If if they're doing political writing, it's expected of them to write only about women stuff. But I think, and I think another thing that I think that I feel women face um, is that often our opinions and our thoughts, feelings, and our polit- and our political um, thought is not taken as seriously as men, especially when you're a younger woman. I think it changes a lot more when you're, um, when you're, you know, when you're. A much more established academic, but even within academia, um, even within academia, there is this whole issue of how uh, male academics would, uh, you know, would be would would be cited more, or male academics would be invited to conferences more, especially when it comes to more especially when it comes to subjects like IR or politics. And I think these are like uh, within within the normal popular publishing industry and within academia, I think these are two things that female writers and researchers face a lot.
0: Uh,
1: so uh, so what are the challenges you faced when
0: you were approaching publishers or anything in the process of publishing your book and, or anywhere you believe your gender did affect? Mm-hmm. Um, how people perceive both. Mm-hmm. Even if we see, like, even if I see around myself in society, or you know, when they're like gen- general Indian uncle sitting there, they-, they consider politics to be their part and they uh, won't really consider the opinion of, say, their wife or somebody else who has an opinion and does not, or say, even their wives or daughters, when you uh a sure lack of experience, even though there's a very high chance like, I might be equally aware if I've
1: been following news. And I think it's uh, you know, there's one version of uh, men uh, silencing women in their homes. It's this whole concept of lack of experience. And the other, these days, especially what happens when when a young girl uh, moves out of their family homes and gets an education and then gets, um, you know, comes back uh, with newer ideas and challenges the beliefs and automatically the same uncle. It's not about experience anymore because clearly this other person has been Uh, Out and about, has their own opinions, very confident in themselves. Then the way to shut women down is all of a sudden that you don't have moral values. Where are your traditions? So I think it's very exciting. It's not 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 exciting, but I think it's very interesting uh, to see how various uh, various things are used to keep women quiet. First, there would be lack of experience, the way you mentioned it. The second would be uh, you know lack of moral values. I think like for women to have an opinion in any public space uh, there's, there's always like a lot of challenge whether it's publishing or whether it's something as basic as your home
0: i agree that that same stereotype is also there in public and also you know our micro spaces like different families anjika
2: hi Heard this is anjika here uh, so, you know, you talked about how male writers are treated differently from the female ones. So, do you think that the audience and readers and even critics have any negative biases towards the books that are written by female writers?
1: I think, I think, at it's, also, uh, it's you know, the popular sentiment is that women only write chick flicks or women only write romances, or, romance or women only write female-oriented books. So whenever it's a, a, whenever it's a, it's a, and I think this is I see in academia a lot because I'm doing, because these days I'm doing IR and international relations is often considered, especially conflict and war, the things that I'm studying, is often considered a very male oriented, uh, male oriented space. So I think as audiences often have seen that um, someone would pick up a, pick up a book on uh, conflict by, Men, as opposed to women, because women always bring too much of an emotional angle to it. It's not research; like, it's not it's not heavy on. um, It's not it's it's often said that you know women bring softness to the subject, and I think that's 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 some of the most ridiculous things I've uh, seen, especially when it comes to audience uh, responding to female written work, Uh, whether it's um, one fiction fiction bit of books or one, or whether it's the exact opposite, which are academic books. Uh, It's kind of it's kind of strange how women are uh just put into like these stereotypes um and and then because there are these stereotypes are so strong that it, it, the audience would would just would you know hesitate uh picking up picking up female books on on topics that are necessarily within those within the within the system of those stereotypes not necessarily female not necessarily meant for women to work on yeah. Right okay okay so
0: you have a background in formal english literature yeah. what do you think has
1: been the role of
0: literature background in shaping you as a writer
1: i think the most important for me of shaping me as a writer and i think as a person would be i read i read a lot of women uh, because they could relate to it for me it was for me i loved reading i loved reading a female voice because as a child i would imagine that 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 voice being my own um but I think the ways in which and I think India India in, in India some of the most some of the most brilliant writers of women writers, whether it's Arundhati Roy, um and not just India, South Asia, whether it's Kamala Shamji, um it's Fatima Bhutto, so does, or it was Chuk when you you know when you look at immediate post independence, mm-hmm. um uh, post independence work or if you see the contemporary contemporary writers that I just mentioned, I think and I think South Asia is so rich in female voice that I grew up. I grew up reading a lot, a lot of it, and I grew up reading a lot around the partition, which was um, around the partition, which was like, around partition, which was written by women. Um, so, lot of Amrita Preetam, uh, because she's so close to home. You know, I wanted to read more Sikh women uh, writers, and then and then through Preetam, I started reading a steep. I I. You know, I kind of forayed into the whole Urvashi conversation that she opened up about partition and narratives, and I think in, in so many ways, uh, literature around conflict, partition, and that, and literature based on activism, which is uh, which is the the Roy like Roy's literature or Shamsi's literature, I think these are these have shaped my political views a lot, and I think, but more than shape, I think they've also given me. I think they've also given me a lot of confidence. The more women I see in political space, especially a space where it's critical of politics, of electoral politics, I think um, it just uh, it just as, as a young woman, the way I felt about it was that I am so glad somebody's doing this and I'm so glad it's a woman and if she can do it, I can do it. And I also hope that maybe someday I, someday I, can, I can produce work that makes young people feel the same way. But I think that's, that's like the biggest impact you writing know, I think has, have, has had on me.
0: Okay. And did your background, like, you did English, um, you know, you started formally English in your college, it was your major, did it help and aid, like, you being a better writer in any way you
1: feel? I think it's very strange. I don't think I would necessarily say that you need to, you need to have done literature to be a better writer. That's Mm -hmm. not something that I'm saying. But I think for me personally, I, because, because, because the way the way Englishes taught in the CPSC boards, the, the ones that I did, it it doesn't engage. It isn't literature that's very. You're not meant to analytically mm. engage with books. But I still, but I remember, or or text, or writing styles, or poetry, or. But I think when I went to when I went to when I went to college to do my undergrad in literature, I think it completely from like someone who would read, uh, be, because I did lip theory. Um for someone who as, as as like as someone who's not done literature, when I was reading these texts I would just read the story of it and I'd kind of get the sense of it. But I think after doing a literature degree I could I could break you know, I could just break apart texts in, in like various in various ways where I could where there's so much to like take from it as opposed to the story that it's telling. And I think that really helped me. Did it help me necessarily in my writing? Um I think I think to write better you have to read better. And I think the degree taught me how to read. Oh but, true. but you don't quite really you don't really need a degree to be taught. So I wouldn't so but it helped me. It I, I think I think the fact that I that I could I can read the read the way I read now and analyze texts the way I analyze them now and read poetry the way I read it now has really helped me shape my own writing but that could be done without a literature degree as well. Though I don't think, I don't think you could you could write without reading. That's like one thing I'm very very sure about. You can't, you can't just be a writer and not be a reader. That's not something I am. I, I, I think I'm a fan of.
0: I come from the same. I'm I am also pursuing English right now, mm-hmm. English honors. So what I realized is, like in a text, you do get like a lot of views. So you're reading the same text from a feminist view, then from Marxist Marxist view, uh, and what probably it meant mm-hmm. so a lot of interpretations you get of the text then you start finding another meaning on what like the text is and text could have meant yeah. um, you also see the background the background of the author and everything so yeah i think it does really um, help you engage so so much more with the text and you would well, i would have usually done any day yeah. so yeah same so
1: I, I, I I think I think the same thing that you said. I think because I did a lot of lit theory and I knew exactly how to read text, I think it really helped me, um, helped me put like different lens to the same situation and same um, same text. And I yeah, and I think it's helped me kind of like I, I do want to emulate similar layers and styles the way um, I think writers have done previously. Um, but yeah, but I think that's that's about it. That's that's the work that literature has done. For, that, that's the help that literature um, done for my writing. Yeah. The topic
2: of with, uh, um, so, would you like to talk about the process of writing and your experience having penned down?
1: Process of writing. So, I think, if, especially because it's all endless. If, if I specifically have to tell about, talk to you about Ellis I wrote both my books while I was still in college, and and I have to say I've been very fortunate. I don't, I don't think, I don't think I have to like acknowledge the fact that I've been very privileged in a way, and very. Um, and like, just life worked out in a way where I happened to have written two books while being in college. I don't think it's a, like, I'm, in, I'm an anomaly. This is, um, I don't think it's, a, it's something that's, uh, what's the word I would use for it. I don't think it's something that, I wouldn't say I'm extraordinary, which is why I wrote two books while I was in college. I just think life happened in a way that I had the opportunity to, to do it. And I think I had the discipline to run through with it. So I think all the young girls who are, you know, who are listening to it. I hope you also acknowledge that uh, I'd been very lucky in the opportunity that I'd gotten, um, and deeply, and I th- and, and you know, I acknowledge my privilege completely from it. But I think while I was in college, I wrote these two books. And as LSR is, you have to have attendance, uh, right. so I would go to college at eight forty-five. For so yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, go yeah. Go to college at eight forty-five for my first, book. and then just like do college like. Mm, fool around till like 4.30, yeah. not fool around, but attend class Eat Maggie, <laughs> yeah. you know, hang around, hang around the restaurant, and then go to the back markets, so all of that, all, everything I would do till like 4.30, 5.30, and then I would go home and I would sleep, Okay. Um, then I'd be very hungry when I'm sleeping, so I'd like wake up at 8, 8 o'clock because out of hunger, <laughs> and I'd wake up at 8, you know. Have like a cup of coffee, and by then because I've napped also, I was like proper fresh enough. And then I would start working like nine thirty onwards, like nine thirty onwards till like four am.
2: Oh my god! Um, Okay, which is
1: writing in the book, which is just writing in the book. And then I would sleep again at four am, kind of like stumble out of my bed at eight forty five. And I think I did that this whole cycle till like my book was complete. Okay. Um, But. uh, you did but it for yes. whole new books, like for two years you were following this not like two years I think I think depended. like it just like I think it's scheduled in it in such a way that um, like if if like I would have certain writing goals for each week um, like I would uh, I had a structure where I was like okay today I'm going to do um, so let's say let's say first week like a four week plan would be in in first week I'd finish all my research I'll have all my notes. Um I'll have everything to do for like ten chapters and then second week I'll start writing those chapters out and like this the week you know, the goal for second week would be that I have three drafts out. Um so I three like uh, like a single first draft out of like the first three chapters and second second week would be the next three chapters and the third week would, the fourth week would be the next four chapter four chapters till I'm done with ten. And then I take like three days break and like not even touch any of that text. So I think till I finished the 24, 24, 27 chapters of smaller acts of freedom, I kept doing this, and then I took another like twenty-day of break for like, and then went back to the second draft of the whole book, and and then, uh, but mostly my work, my my working time for my um for my for my for my writing was nine thirty till. 4am and and i don't think but i'll I'll also say this if you're not if you're not someone who has to have who has like an attendance issue in college um or like who's who's working from home or who has like more time in the day i would suggest just write in the day as opposed to like be a night owl um, because i i only did it out of uh, out of necessity as opposed to out of like some romanticized version of I can only write at night I wish I feel like I feel like now that I be, now that I write in the morning I write way clearer and way better than I did back in LSR with like my two roommates sleeping right next to me but <laughs> but yeah but I think that's how I wrote two books. do
0: you think the process of writing um, you know has some frustration? There, there are moments when you get just frustrated mm-hmm. uh, for it. The- or there's a creative blog or something of that sort. So how do you deal with the lows, you know, that come in the process of
1: writing? I think for sure. I think there's so many times you have those. Like sometimes I would just have... I th- like sometimes I would have, like, I wouldn't be able to write sentence. Like, I just didn't know how, I would would have thought, I would have a feeling, I just didn't know how to write that, turn that into a sentence, or I'd have these, like, various... But I think something that I realized was that I started writing in longhand, Uh, so every time I wanted to say something, I would just, like, pointers in my notebook with my hand and be like, okay, what are the things that I want to say right now? Um, But, uh, yeah, but I think, I think that kind of, like, helped me kickstart my writing from the writer's block. Um, but there have been days where I had you know where I would be like I just can't write at all and when those days happen I take a nap I sleep I watch a lot of things I watch a lot of I'll watch a lot of movies I'll watch a lot of um, I'll read a lot of books articles um, because sometimes what happens is sometimes you just need like one piece of somebody else's content or, or content or work or or to like, to just touch a chord in you and like it all comes pouring out. Um, so I give myself that little bit of space to be, um, to, to, you know, have, to have somebody, like, to have other works uh, be a catalyst into motivating me to write or like, to make, you know, creating like this reaction in me that just immediately forces me to write and that happens a lot. So these two things I would do.
0: Okay so um, i like it like i think a lot of creative people do that so when i took the interview of ankita Shavla she was she also told me like when this blog hits how you consume content and it gets you know also a spark yeah. to do and create more and ideas get going.
1: i mean i think i think you know the thing in academia it's very well known that it's uh, like even though everyone's doing their own individual project but it's still reproduction of knowledge right um and it's the same with it's the same with non like it's the same with non-academic fiction non-fiction books the more popular books you're still reproducing you know it's still reproduction of knowledge so which is so which is why it becomes even more important to engage in all the work that's been done before you um as much as it is in like the academic world it is as important in the non-academic world and i don't think and i don't think there's ever i don't think there's a, pure, there's a pure argument or there's a pure story. I think as writers, you are kind kind of standing on the foundations that writers before you have laid. Uh, And I think it's very important to respect and acknowledge that. True. So
0: after you wrote something deeply personal, like small acts of freedom, how and when did you decide to write the young and restless India? Um, What was the vision you had behind this book? Mm -hmm. How did the idea strike you? Or was there any incident or particular moment, moment that inspired you to um, take up this
1: book? I think for me it was often, um, you know, it was in my last year of college, and everyone, every, everywhere I went, I was often asked, um, Are you going to be a politician? do you want to be in politics? Um, is that something you want to do? And you know, part of me was also very swayed by the idea of like, how would it, what would it be like to be a politician? You know, what is that? How, how do people start? What, and you know, and, and often when you think of, and often when you think of politicians, especially in India, you think of much older people. And I was very curious to see if let's say I was to, you know, be a politician one day, but do, who do I look up to and, and I kind of, and, and I was kind of scouting people on Wikipedia, and I was like, I'm so curious to know more about these people. Like these journeys are, these sound so exciting. I want to know more about what they think about. And I, and I, you know, and I was having these conversations with my friends, and they were like, Yeah, I wish there was a book that was only meant, for, only like, you know, that was doing a deep, that was going into the minds of these young people, because you know, we are a young country, and what do we know about the young people who are leading this young country? And I think that's where like the idea of the book kind of, um, kind of popped up. And I remember, and I remember having, and from this conversation, I remember meeting meeting Mansi, who uh, who was an editor, who's also a very good friend of mine, uh, a mentor, and who's also the editor of my first book. I was meeting her at the end of my exams, and I was just telling her, I was like, you know, this is something I have been thinking about. And she looks at me, and she's like, we need to have this book. She's like, we, I would yeah and she was like we need to have like a book like this this is a great idea and she's also someone who's been very very uh, has been like a support system um who's pushed me in a way to work on projects that i think ideally i may not have had if i didn't have her to be a part of that support system so i think that's how the book came about um and that was the intention and motivation of it i think it came out of sheer curiosity as most as most works do
2: you talked about, you know, how you managed writing with college and attendance and everything. So do you have any tips for aspiring writers? Because like you said, you acknowledge your privilege that you were able to write these books. So a lot of people think, you know, that they don't have enough they don't have enough experience and they'll wait to write their books. So what would you like to
1: say to people? I'm taking my time I'm taking my time thinking about it because there's so much to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's so much to say. I could like if I was to ever write a small like if I was ever to write a book to like a much younger self I think I think I would tell her so many things about writing but I think first thing, the first thing I would tell young people especially when it comes to writing the writing will not come to you because often the, especially with our profession there's this especially with literature in our profession and the work that we're doing in this world it's often assumed it's like this airy floaty um, you know, romantic space where you're just engaging with texts and having conversations, you're know, inspired, and you do poetry, you do fiction, I and mean, you know, there's this whole like idea of it. And people often whereas, you know, engineer ingen- whereas something more hard, like more like harder sciences or social sciences, um, like economics or, or finance stuff, everything it's it's much more like you know, there's a certain there's a certain like respect towards these subjects because there's a certain idea that there's like discipline goes into learning those subjects. I think with writing uh, with writing, the first thing I would tell younger writers is this: is that the discipline is most important. The writing will not come to you. You will have to write. So you will, there is no one magical moment where inspiration will hit you. You'll have to take yourself from your bed to your desk, sit down and write every single day. And the second thing I would tell you is, um, is everybody's first drafts are complete. Can I use this word? Shit. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone's first draft is complete shit. It's complete nonsense. So write <laughs> nonsense. Allow yourself that. And then you can work on it if you want to work on it or not work on it if you don't want to work on it. And sometimes you'll write like a draft of, um, let's say, 2,000 words, and only 300 words would be nice, which is 100% progress. Because not all 2,000 words are going to be brilliant. Only 200 are going to be brilliant, and that's big progress. So so understand understand that not everything would be quality, but the, and because not everything is quality doesn't mean you're a bad writer. So just keep ha, like you go on your desk, write, have the discipline of writing. And second, don't don't like and don't assume perfection. Like perfection is not what you want. Discipline is what you want. and Consistency is what you want. And consistent effort is what you want in your writing. The same thing you would do for um, an economics or or, a, or a science degree. Take that same discipline into writing. Um, I think those would be one of
2: the bigger things I would tell young people right and I think that's really important because a lot of people do not uh, consider writing as important as you know the sciences and they're like it does not require that much effort or anything and I think what you're saying is so important because it requires the same discipline and structure yeah
1: and I would tell you this I know a lot of my friends who are doing math who can like put music in and I like, keep solving the uh, the problem sheets, um, right? Because it's because it's so mechanical. I'm not saying that it doesn't take your mental effort, but you like. But I'm somebody who can who so can you know because because our work is so you have to think so deep in your head. You can't listen to music. So I think it's. So I think when it comes down to which 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 one's more entertaining, I think the one where you can listen to music too. Right. Right.
0: <laughs> I read somewhere that you can't edit a blank page. Like when I was young, I came across this um, quote that you can't edit a blank page and it changed everything. I was like, I will put down my thought no matter how badly it comes out because otherwise it has no chance of, you know, existing somewhere on paper and it would never be edited and it would it cannot go out and just be there. So, yeah, so you have to know it.
1: I don't know. A little bit full for it I believe. Oh. Um but I, I remember reading it and I was like, true. So that's the same thing. Never have a blank page, just have sheets of paper even if it's bad writing. You can always edit it. And there's always going to be this one bit of there's going to be one bit of oh, big huge chunk of bad writing that that's going to be golden. Like strive for that. So,
0: so um did you always want to become a writer or
1: did it come to you later
0: as you progress
1: i always wanted to be a writer i think i mean there were like bits when i was like three years old when i was like oh i want to be in the army i want to be like my father but i think ever since i think the first thing i ever wanted to be was a writer um and it's it's always been that i i think that and then eventually i was training and i was playing tennis and i wanted to you know be a professional athlete um, but that was a whole different phase, but even when I was doing that, I always knew that writing is what I want to do for sure. Um, there was never a doubt what I wanted to be. I think I came and I often tell people I came to politics through writing uh, because all the works that I would be, I would read were deeply political. and I think my political awareness came through fiction because I was reading because I was re- reading stories um, that were so political in nature and i don't think and i think often i was asked this in my interview when they were like you know you're moving from like um you're moving from a literature degree to a political degree don't you think it's a big shift and i think and this is something that i told them and this is something i deeply believe that that nothing in this world is apolitical so especially not literature so for me that shift is very natural okay so um
0: I think somewhere we read that you wanted to become a professional tennis player as well as a child, but due to knee injury, it hindered uh, you from achieving that. I know you still play, but like not as, oh Yeah, no. I, play, I play university tennis now.
1: I play for the Oxford team.
0: So, um, so if you, when you wanted to become, you know, a professional tennis player as a child and you couldn't, mm-hmm. I don't know how true, I don't know if this is accurate in the right so so is it like your uh, dream was shattered or hindered in any way when you got a knee injury and mm-hmm. you put in prayer
1: I, I i i had a gap year for a i which is why i've i had been older than my friends in my in my college and which is also how i'm 23 and still and and i graduated at 22 undergrad and um but yeah i had a gap year i could not i could not I mean, I still remember being ten. I still remember being ten years old, and you know, picking up a racket, and then eventually, you know, we were training really hard. Me and my sister, we we were home school, Um We because we we truly really just wanted to focus on tennis, and we gave it gave it our all. Um, it kind of uh, you know when when that didn't work out for ten. 10 years, you know, you've been waking up every single morning at five o'clock, you've been reaching goals you've been, you know, you've been working out, you've been eating good food, when all your friends are eating ice creams. you're just like looking at their faces at 11 years old, 12 years old, and, you know, you, you, you have that discipline to be like, no, I can't eat it because I have to train. You know, when you've lived that life for 10 years and that dream eventually shatters because of one stupid mistake, um, it, it really throws you off track, and I, and it took me one complete year, um, of it took me it took me a whole complete year of getting back on track i think i think i think i think that disappointment and that depression um was like i could not like this is what i would like my day would be i could not move out of my i I still remember this i could not move out of my bed and i would eat like packets of blue lace, one after the other while watching vampire diaries like consistently for eight hours and then sleeping in the same spot and then waking up and doing it again for like days till i had to and like every time i would walk out i was like i would be miserable i would just cry at the top of the hat i was frustrated i was mad i was pulling my hair out i was doing the roof to everyone around me and i think it was a very deeply like mentally disturbing um mentally disturbing year i I still quite don't understand how I, how I managed to get out of it because I wasn't taking I wasn't. Doing therapy but I think a part of me was just like, okay, you know what this for like so this one bit I'll only focus on um, I'll only focus on um, my 12 standard exams, like nothing else. Um, and that's what I did. I was like, let's not think about anything else so, but I don't think that's a very healthy thing to do.
0: Okay, so, right. so, so uh, you are home, yeah. yeah.
2: So, you know, you're at Oxford, which is like a dream for, you know, so many people. And, you know, you only mentioned on your Instagram once that pursuing higher academics is, you know, a privilege since a lot of people have to, you know, after college, they're forced to take up a job and support their families. So, you know, since it is a very expensive college and especially as an international student from India, it is, you know, the expenses are a huge deal. So, you know, for people who are applying... There, there, there's a lot of doubt about the finances involved and the scholarships. So what helped you d- dream big? And do you have any alternative backup plans about the scholarships and everything?
1: If you so, didn't get through the scholarship, I do have, have a plan. No, no I, I was very, very certain that I wouldn't have come here. Um, that was my backup plan. Uh, or I think I would have like, I, I, knew, I knew somebody in my course who crowdfunded um, their i the crowd like chunk of their, their their fees um but but did i have a plan i didn't i think i think i wouldn't have I, if i didn't have the scholarship i wouldn't have been able to make it here which is also why i applied i applied to various places and applied to various scholarship and you might know, made sure my um i made sure i i put myself in a space where where i where there was so the probability, right? The more places you apply to, the more, the more you know, the more options you open for yourself, and the more scholarships you open for yourself. Um, so that's what I did. Um, about dreaming big, I, I just really wanted to study. I, I just really wanted to study. So I would like sit on the internet. I still remember in my, like, in my like right after first year or first year exams i would sit on the internet and i would look up every single course on every like i had a huge list of universities that i wanted to go to and interests that i had and um the courses that they had and i think i basically basically so what i did was i picked up i picked up scholarships a list of scholarships that were available to indian students and i picked up every single thing i could apply for within the interests of like literature journalism. Um, politics, um, but uh, but I think even like, even even applying is such a privilege, right? Uh, because application fees are so much. Often you can like write to universities um, and tell them to waive off your application fees. But like I said, I think I think that's that's the thing about I think that's the thing about all these higher education. They are uh, while while it's great and all, it's all they're also very um, it, there's also a lot of gatekeeping, uh, which I'm not a fan of, which I think I'll always be critical about.
2: Okay so now okay. that all your hard work paid off and you're sitting in Oxford so when you look back on your journey you know from LSR to Oxford is there anything you think you would have wanted to do differently through the years
1: I think maybe hang out with my friends a bit more <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah I, I I honestly I don't think anything like professionally I think I've been very fortunate um to have to have to have had the opportunities and do the kind of work that I did um, but I think but I think one thing I would I generally think I really should have done differently would be like uh, as opposed to napping maybe like hanging out with my friends and going to the parties that I was invited to um, and yeah, and like just loitering around and North Campus. Um, I really wish I I did more of that as opposed to like taking naps and then going going ahead and writing. So like if if someone's out there who's thinking, oh my God, I'm just like you know hanging out with my friends and not doing anything productive. I, I I I think I think some of the most, especially as writers, I think some of the most beautiful stories you'll find out while you're just living life and experiencing it and i wish i i wish i did i wish that i wish i had done that that's one of my only things i would change but nothing else okay okay so coming to, to
0: activism which was also a part sure part of all journey hmm? um so how uh, how would you define your journey with activism probably a brief light on it how it get yeah how did you first engage uh, I think first
1: engagement of activism um, with activism came through Roy um, because I was reading a lot of her like I read Ellen Lupito and I was like, a big fan of her and that eventually moved from like, her fiction work to her non-fiction work so I think always a part of me part of me really respected uh, the, the kind of work she did and you I, 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 even when you're younger it's like I wanted to be like that person um, so I think I came through, through activism through literature and then eventually I like, became, and, and you know, I knew the things, and I knew the things I felt very politically strongly towards, um, and then I started becoming, um, and, and I remember when I just started, you know, being politically aware, I was, I was in Jalandhar, I was not in Delhi, and Jalandhar is not, and you know, sm- smaller towns, you're not very sure of which, politic, you know, who, which civil societies exist, and they didn't exist many civil societies back when I was, like, back when I was 17, um, so for me, my political engagement was all on Facebook because those communities were very strong. Um, and that's how I joined, I, that's how I came into activism. That's how I was a part of the groups and like Profile for Peace campaign um, and a bunch of things. But uh, but that was, I think to put it, but that was before my college. I think when I came to college, um, uh, like that was a part of, uh, you know, I was like as first years, I also went to uh, the Pinjator uh, pr- uh, protests and, Marches that were organized by our like LSR's then um, then ex president, like still ex president, but like my senior, senior. Um, and then I think, yeah, and I was like, I, I we just like as, as young kids, you know, as like fresh, fresh, freshers, you just like join in um, and just stand in a corner, like shyly, and, and you know, you're really, I think, but that was those were like my first um, experiences with activism. And I went and I think, like, in in Jalandan, and then my first experience when I joined um,
2: uh, LSR. Okay, so you have been uh, very active, you know, in LSR and even in Oxford, because we've seen your posts about speaking about issues in India from Oxford. So, having been a part of both institutions, would you like to compare the, you know, the activism and the students and how they are in the two places? I mean, there's nothing. I think- don't
1: think there's a we never compare the students at all because because especially if you look at the post grads, often the post grads come from the same universities, um, did their undergrads and what the PhDs who would have done their masters in Jamia or JNU or did you know, kids who did their undergrads in um, in in, in DU or Mumbai University or places like these. So I don't think, I just do comparison between the Indian kids that I, was, um, that I was working with because we all come from the same, you know, we're, we're all projects of the same Indian institutions. And I think that's also a bit problematic because what about beyond like the DUs and the uh, Nalsars and the big, uh, big names, um, often um, local universities, uh, you know there's no representation in places like Oxford and local universities but only these very elite spaces um, such as DU and JNU uh, like intellectually elite spaces such as DU and JNU and Gianna. Um but I think but uh, but yeah not a particular sense of, not with the Indian kids of course there's a huge difference when it comes to um, British kids but there's a huge difference when it comes to um, kids, from, kids from other parts of the world because you're sharing space with kids who you know, you're sharing space with kids who've taught their class at Harvard, or kids who've... Um, just br- absolutely brilliant um, people from across the world and brilliant universities. So I don't know how to make that comparison at all. Um, but something very exciting about activism that happened was uh, at the Union, there was a, like the Af- the, uh, the, the African uh, society uh, led a protest uh, when the office When the Oxford Union uh, had was mis like somebody at the Oxford Union misbehaved with a disabled person, Um, and it was very exciting to see um, the solidarity of how uh, everyone every person of color joined the protest um, in solidarity with the uh, African society, Um, and I think that was a very very interesting moment because you realize how you know how how like the global south has and how people of colour, you know, we're completely linked by our oppression, uh, by the by, by the West and the global north. And I think there's like that connect consistently there. And that was very exciting. Not exciting, but that was also that I, I I like that activist spark of solidarity, um, in Oxford that I found.
0: So, um when as you say you were you know just another college student when you saw injustice happening around you specifically i think in ramja's incident Mm. so there are so many students like you who taught us uh what do you think gave you the courage to speak up against it because you know when we saw this when we see this culture in you of apvp or NSUI, it's usually uh or you know a lot of fear like i would say using muscle power etc a very toxic culture, honestly, sometimes. So, um, yeah, so what gave you the courage to speak up on face of? I
1: mean, I think a lot of people spoke up as well. But I think I think the only thing that that kind of maybe I did differently was that uh, I started the black card photo campaign with where we changed our profile picture to when it said students against ABVP and influence solidarity with Ramjus. But I think I, I would say that a lot, the, the reason why it became a movement was because a lot of people joined in and because a lot of people were speaking up. Um, but having having said that, I think why why particularly I, where I found courage from, um, along with everybody else, I think my courage also came from like, I think to, to start like a campaign against the AV, it also comes from a little bit of madness. Because some people would call it bravery, but I think Oh, but I think I, I think if I was being sensible, I probably would be like I'm 19 years old. I'm a young student from Jalandhar. Uh, the ABVP is a very big political organization. A lot of you know, with pe with with mm-hmm. instances such as with with instances where they haven't held back with violence, and I'm not exactly very safe. I think if I was being smart about my about my about how I'm going what I'm going to do I don't think I would have ever done it I think it comes from I think I, I gave into my instinct um, and my I think I gave into my instinct immediately I was I was I was hurt I was pained uh, to see what was happening in Ramjas and I and I knew I and I and I don't know I I just did it I think some sometimes I think it was a bit mad to do it it was a bit uh, it was a bit careless to do it um not that I regret it, but I I think it might have been. I mean, I I'm very fortunate that I come from a very privileged space because back home, the things that I did, my family supported me, um, and and things turned out in a way where I wasn't where because there was so much public attention on me, I wasn't as vulnerable to um, to threats, who threats as as maybe like somebody else who. Who who has spoken against ABVP, um, but it wasn't, but did not have as much media attention, uh, would be. So I was very, really, like, I, like I say, I think I, I fully acknowledge um, the the realities of, of of it. But like I said, a lot of people have spoken up up against against the ABVP, and I think and I think there's bravery in doing it. Um, there's also some madness in doing it, and that madness also comes from like from deep sensitivity um, and empathy. An absolute, absolute need to resist oppression that the like that the political institutions such as the ABVP um, or the BJP have to offer. Okay.
2: So you know you've gone from being the shy kid who used to stand in the corner at protests to growing into what you are today. So from your experiences, do you think what are the ways in we can make activism in India better, or you know? Are there any fallouts of activism that you would like to point out?
1: I think I think the first would be, how do we define activism? For me, I think any, I think activism could be through anything. You could, you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't, you could be, you could be that shy person in the corner, in the protest, and you're, that's activism. If you show up to a protest, you're an activist. You know, if you show up to a protest and you're a part of those who, you know, take the, if you you the part of you you're you're the person who gives the pamphlets you're an activist you're you're an organizer you know if you're someone who sits in the meetings and take, takes meeting minutes you're an activist you're an organizer you're an organizer if you're someone who does um who does twitter you know the social media work or like are arranging twitter storms um or are doing petitions or are doing um or are writing you know or or are, or are constantly writing and creating content that's activism. I don't think activism can be like boxed in a way you know there's no, like this no. I think I think the definition of how we the popular imagination of what an activist is and what an activist does I think an activist uh, organizes the activist shows up and constantly speaks. It doesn't have to be a particular way there's no just no there. one take a performativity out of it. Any anything is activism and I think, I think that's something I would say. So
0: what are your beliefs or ideas, uh, what are your uh, views on this idea of political correctness, like people aligning with certain ideals, mm-hmm. the liberalist
1: view or how we see today. So yeah, what are your views on the you idea of political keep, I, I think I think I don't I don't know how to like answer because it's such a, a vast question. So much can be written about how do you how do how does one I think the biggest I think one way to answer political the question of political correctness is what is politically correct. But who is it politically correct? Um, what is your positionality in when you say that I'm being a politically correct person. Um, so these are things you have to notice when you but what do I have to say about political correctness? Who's political correctness are you talking about? Like, am I someone who cares to be politically correct? Absolutely not. Um, I don't know, but should I be? guess, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. I haven't really thought about political correctness at all. Um, i've only thought about uh, just general correctness in life like how can you see something like for me it's it's, it's not about political correctness it's something it's basic general connect correctness mm-hmm. if you, if i may say so if i may coin this term i mean if you see you are migrant labors something very recent that happened are migrant laborers who were sleeping on a train track and, and a train ran over them what the Politically correct thing would be to say, ooh, the government is doing great, la la la, let not saying anything, let's just keep quiet. and That's politically correct. Like the correct thing to say is like, quite literally, be appalled at what's happening. And you know, that's one example, there over and over and over again, there's so many injustices happening. The only thing you can do is speak up. If you don't, then, then take, I don't know, then take that political correctness and just shove it up places if I make
2: (laughs) this okay so (laughs) do you believe that calling people out helps in bringing reform Mm
1: Hmm. naming and shaming Um, I have been having very I have to be honest I'm having I'm constantly having this debate in my head about naming and shaming but I think something I had a something that I generally question over and over again I think Naming and shaming, what it does, I think it creates like a certain mob mob against one person. And a part of me also believes the whole concept of what's naming and shaming. Naming and shaming is back in the day, um, back in the day in the times when someone was accused of something, you would take that person and make him stand in, like in, a, in a chunk uh, or in a public space or in a market and have everyone throw stones at them or do public lashing um, or do public flogging. Um and eventually that became and eventually that that became illegal that's against you know that's um you're taking away somebody's human rights and there's justice there. what about somebody's um what about you know back in the back in the day these were debates like what 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 about justice does this does this person is um does this person have a right to for themselves or make a case for themselves? Uh, how does the concept of justice work and I think I'm still debating um, I'm still debating how I feel about naming and shaming when it comes to is it is it the most effective way for someone in a society a part of me has to say a part of me is very convinced that if there that anything that's unjust um, or any or unjust, anything that leads to a mob-like situation, um, I don't, I'm not quite, uh, I'm not very instinctively, I'm not very drawn to it. Often I feel uh, pressurized into being a part of it, because if I don't then, you know, the next thing I know is I'm a bad feminist and then I'm being named in Shame Shame for being a bad feminist. But um, I'm constantly having these debates. I'm constantly having these debates and not seeing not saying that. I think there are of course merits to it, which I 100% acknowledge. Um, but I don't know. I'm quite, uh, I'm quite conflicted to be honest. If I, if if I may say so, I, I think about it every day.
0: I was also like starting to think specifically when voice locker then happened. So. Uh, it, we go by how law is, we are not allowed to take the name of juveniles in public no. uh, if they have been victim of sexual offences, convicted or accused of sexual offences. But when I saw hashtag movement happen, uh, I think the, especially in debating circuit of Delhi and NUN circuits, the, the part that when people were called out, also even when you engage them personally, they might not have you know taken. Um, uh, responsibility or acknowledge that they did something wrong but when they were called out they actually started to see okay this can have repercussions, uh, people whom we idolize, we didn't see another side of them. So yeah. I, then calling out became a very um, I think um, crucial uh, in a way uh, for the circuit in one sense to know that these people who are idolized at the top are doing something wrong which yeah. uh, huge. Some of us are not aware of, so again, I have
1: been really conflicted, so that's yeah, the question. So. But, and it's okay to be conflicted, right, because these are very, these are, these are very rapid, I'm, I think one thing that everyone, every, like, I think all of us truly really believe is how, is our, is our sheer support to the movement, is our support to, support to the survivors, um, and as our sheer apathy to those who have been accused and are being tried. Um, right now i think that those are some one things that all of us agree but then they uh, then they will as as it goes with political movements as it was with the Anahasal movement and the debate that was within the left um within the left back 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 then or within the left progressives then or as it is with the media movement right now the debate will constantly go on and it's okay to feel conflicted but and, and I think these is because the internet works in a certain way, you know, you're almost always like, I don't want to be, you know, I always have to have an opinion, and I have to know what to say. You don't have to. These, like, these debates are, extreme. these debates cannot be, um, cannot be, cannot be condensed like, to a 100 word tweet or an Instagram post. These like I said, you know, when I gave the example of flogging, these the, the whole debates about how justice systems work, and how do you make justice truly or truly something that works for humanity. you know it goes back it, far, far in history, and you have to go back and look at all the work that's been done there to have a very well a very well-known opinion. On something as as delicate as um as as this because we saw what happened with the boys when somebody um a, a, a kid took their life on being named and shamed and and it's very very tragic it's very tragic and i feel guilty of uh sometimes being pressurized into doing doing these like being i don't know but but like i said i think it's you have to constantly take steps back think think where it is think what you're doing um, be be conflicted. I think this is what I would say. It's okay to be confused. I'm 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 confused. Okay. Yeah. It takes
0: bravery to say that. I agree. Every we all are like trying to jump on conclusions more. mostly, which is like. Um, so So, uh, when uh, so when you started activism and that you know when you. You know, took that play card thing happened during around Ramja's incident. A lot of big personalities like Yogesh Vrindavan, Babita Fogart, uh, for Babita Fogart, Fogart, yeah. Fogart Randy Gouda, these actors, you know, didn't understand the intent of your statement, mm-hmm. what you were trying to say about the consequences of war and how it leads to loss yeah. for the both sides. So there was a lot of negativity, and the way you have grown, you know, from this backlash is appreciable. Mm -hmm. But with so much hate around on social media, what's your uh, advice to deal with hate or negativity that comes when you also, in a way, openly express your opinions Mm -hmm. in public? Advice or...
1: I think an advice would be find solidarity because you can't be the only person who feels that way, Um, which is why why there are all these groups that are made on Facebook or... Because we're talking about online hate. There are groups that are made on Facebook. Find people who have the same opinions as... As you find solidarity there, and I think, and I don't think alone you could, you can ever, and ever manage something as 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 deeply painful as online hatred or vitriol And I would never say, I would never say, part of me is just like. A part of me every single day. I'm just I wish I could just go back and like I don't have to deal with a troll every single day. You know, I have a essay deadline or I have a I have exams coming and I have so much pressure to do. Friends are not talking to me. The boy I like hasn't replied to my message. And I'm so you know what I'm saying. Sometimes I'm just like I don't want to deal with a troll telling me I'm I'm anti-national or that uh, and and just and, yeah. But uh, but I think but you have to do it. You have to stay on. You have to you have to occupy space. Um, like the political space in a in a in a world where um where it's just the right wing that is being heard and is loud because so you have to take whatever space your opinion can find um and make space for other people around you. Make space for people who've not had that you know, who've not had um who are who've been marginally oppressed for so long, who've not had uh that, that space, you know, step off sometimes, but like have like a engage in these solidarities, engage in these intersectional solidarities online and in real life and continue continue challenging what's happening um, in India now is something that I would say. Um,
2: So do you think that media reporting desensitizes us towards tragedies by you know reducing everything to numbers? What practices do you think can be better journalism?
1: Ooh, for better journalism? Yeah, I actually I don't know if I can answer that because I'm not a journalist yet. <laughs> but you know, I mean I would answer it, but I don't I don't know if I if I'm like the most qualified person to answer. But I think one practice for journalism could be to journalism essentially is reporting the truth, right? Yeah, I think journalists should stick to the very fundamental of uh, reporting the truth and being ethical, uh, as opposed to shoving. Something very recently that I saw was how reporters were shoving mics in the faces of uh, the the war widows of, of, of the, the the widows of of the, the army personals who've been um, who've been killed in the attack in uh, in Kashmir very recently, and asking how do you feel and please tell us about your feelings. And I just and it's it's, it's absolutely disgusting how people make people make a drama out of somebody else's grief. Um, so I think I think journalism there has to be some basic ethics to it, uh, and not like sensationalization, not facts.
2: Right. Okay.
1: So uh,
0: given we we're in lockdown, and what's okay. Have you
2: been dealing with all the uncertainty and anxiety that has come with this lockdown? Is there anything you would like to share? You know, any coping mechanisms that have helped you?
1: Um, I think, I think something with anxiety, um, especially in, in in times of COVID, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Yes. Okay. It was in the lockdown. Yeah. I think something with anxiety, something that I realized was, I think the first few weeks, I just let myself go and let myself be equal in myself because, you know, it's it's important to understand and acknowledge and give ourselves the little, little, um, little comfort of saying that you know we are not in this alone this is a very very deeply um deeply uh unnatural uncomfortable painful emotionally mentally um physically comfortable period that and that you don't have to be productive so those anxieties i think it's a constant reminder of uh, a constant reminder of where we are in the world and that we're not alone and it's important, and, and, and that you don't have to constantly be be perform the way you've been um, performing um, prior to the prior to the to the lockdown. I think is one way how I've been dealing with anxiety. But I think we're having, but moving on from that, I think one another way that I've always dealt with anxiety is making lists and like following through lists. The only thing now is that my list is very small, very manageable. Uh, I only do like I limit every day to like five tasks. That I can do within whatever period of time, and if I've done those five tasks, if I've accomplished it, um, I I feel, feel okay. So I think I I, w- I would say maybe make a list five easy tasks to do, um, and then just know that you're not in this alone. That this will pass. This this really will pass.
2: Okay, okay, okay. that's great advice.
0: Um, yeah any realizations uh you would like to share that you had during this lockdown period and which changed you in any way
1: probably oh any realizations okay if i have to can i be honest honest with you i think a lot and most of the lockdown I, I i spent chasing an essay deadline so i was just locked up in my room writing an essay and i think i still i still am in a phase where i'm pondering but i, but I haven't given myself the The time to ponder over how this lockdown is affecting me or people around me um so i haven't there hasn't been any any such realizations as of now um but 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 i do think there's a lot to think about here which i i honestly have not so far um because i've had commitments academic commitments that i just could not give up
0: so it takes
1: time to process. Yeah. So, uh, we will jump straight off to the rapid
2: fire now. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, uh, should we start the? Map. Yeah. Should we start the rapid fires? So you just have to give like short answers, quick shot. Yeah. Um, so, five years down the lane, where do you see yourself? Five years. Oh my
1: goodness, this is the worst question you could ask. is not a rapid fire question.
2: My mother asks me this every single day. <laughs> um, I think I that's every mother.
1: Every mother and and I'll tell you what I tell her. If I actually don't know. Uh, you don't ask people who are about to graduate, especially those in a pandemic, what they're going to do in their life. They're all very confused. Uh,
2: yeah. Right. Uh, so, a book that changed your life. Oof, a book that
1: changed my life. Oh my god. Um, Open by Andrea Agassiz, I think it's one of the best books i ever read. Oh. I don't know if it like immediately changed my life, but I think it's a very important book for everyone to read.
2: Uh okay, if you could switch lives with someone, who would it be?
1: Oh my god, if I could switch lives, with someone who would it be? Ooh, this is exciting. Um. Okay, guess. I I I guess I would say Arundhati Roy. So I know what her mind works like, and how he thinks of sentences. Because I'm very curious. Uh Beautiful sentences.
2: Okay, interesting. Uh, If you could have one person over for dinner, you know, fictional or real, dead or alive, who would it be? Hmm, One person over for
1: dinner?
2: Um, Absolutely hypothetical. Anyone.
1: I'd love to. I'd love to. It has to be one person.
2: Yeah, one.
1: Yeah. Mm. I quite, I quite want to. Nehru? Because I'd love to know, I'd love to know, like Jawaharlal Nehru. I'd love to know the, 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 thought behind partition, the conversation around Kashmir and 370. Um, you know, the, how, how he thought about India. I think there's a lot. More, there's there's a lot. I think I would love to have that in the conversation. I'd love to know that, that, that period of the inception of India and Pakistan. Um, I'd love to have that conversation.
2: Great choice. Um, so, one person yeah. that you look up to?
1: That I look up to. Um, I look up to so many people. It's it's ridiculous. I have like a whole list of people that I'm constantly. I'm just like I, I want to be like this person. So, Karuna Nandi. I, I want. every day I'm just like I just want to be like her. I just want to be like her. Um, who else? So many people. There's so many wonderful women that I know. Who I want to mm-hmm. be like.
2: Uh something that inspires you to move forward
1: every day. Um something I think the reason I, I want to every single day I want to have a reason to get out get out of bed.
2: Okay, okay. So
1: when so you're I not I think that's what writing,
2: yeah. Uh when you're not studying or writing, what are you doing?
1: Well I'm not studying or writing. Yeah. Which means what I'm doing. Things that I like to do, I, I like to sleep, I like to watch Netflix, <laughs> uh, I like to cook, I like to go for walks and runs, but I like to hang out with my friends a lot.
2: Okay. Uh, your <sharp> all-time favorite song?
1: My all-time favorite song? Oh my god. There's so many. I think I think AR, Rahman. anything is all-time favorite. Um, so these days, I'm obsessed with uh, Rehnazhu. Okay. (laughs) Because it also reminds me of Delhi. So I think I think whatever song reminds me of Delhi and home is an all time
2: favourite. Okay. So one thing that you miss about India that you don't have in UK?
1: Everything.
2: (laughs) No, one thing (laughs) that you miss the most.
1: (laughs) One thing I miss the most. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh right. (laughs) That's what everybody's missing the most given the lockdown. (laughs)
1: do you know what i'm saying uh, i think everything i say everything also i think i miss I miss noise i miss noise a lot okay so like, I, I miss like i miss uh i miss people talking all the time i miss traffic i miss noise quite
2: a bit <laughs> okay yeah uh, something that lifts your mood instantly something that lifts your mood
1: I, instantly um Coffee, coffee, hundred percent. Okay. Instant.
2: Yeah. <laughs> a skill that you wish coffee. to a skill that you le- wish to learn or master. A
1: skill that I wish to okay, a skill that I wish to learn would be like singing or like a musical instrument or dance, like one because I have no performing art talents whatsoever. Um, so, I think if I could just like master one performing art talent, I could, you know, I'd be like, okay, there are a bunch, but a skill I would like to master would be tennis. Okay. I just think if I, I think there's like so much perfection there okay. for me to go in for. Yeah. Okay.
0: An achievement you consider your greatest?
1: Achievement? I consider anything. I think, I think oh, an achievement that I consider my greatest would be. I think the fact that I survived um, the onslaught the way I did. Yeah. Okay. I think. Okay. I think that there's mm-hmm. a lot to be like. An achievement could be this. This list or that book. But I think. I think the fact that I survived. Um, what happened post-Blanche? I think is the greatest achievement that I lived through it. Okay.
0: Um, your, your favorite memory of
1: Delhi? Favorite mm, memory. there's so many memories of Delhi, but I think, I think just like going with my friends to a protest and then going and eating Golgapahs or like going to the Chai store those are my favorite memories and like just talking, just like just being with my friends, walking around, talking, being around LSR. um, yeah those would be my favorite movies. Whenever I was with my friends, my people, I was very happy. When are you the most creative?
0: Like in general, after you change lifestyles? lifestyle, and- oh my god.
1: Yeah, I think, I think my most productive work is first thing in the morning. I love to, I love to like, my favorite thing to do is like get up, brush my teeth, you know, put, pull my hair back, make myself a cup of coffee. Sit down with the coffee, drink that coffee, and it'll take like 15 minutes for that coffee to hit, And then like my brain just like wakes and then I just like start writing and I think it's the best work that I've done so far. It's just, I, I think I'm most, like I'm most creative, productive. I write, I think, I think best early in the morning after 15 minutes after the coffee. Okay,
0: something that people don't know about you, or you haven't talked about in interviews,
1: maybe. That's how maybe they don't <laughs> something know about um, you. Okay, something that they don't know about you. Really. Uh, I sleep a lot. I sleep forever. Um, as my favorite activity in the world. Also, I hate ice. Okay. Uh, I feel like it's the most controversial thing I've ever said after saying, oh, I want peace with Pakistan. <laughs> But I, uh, I'm a fan of this <laughs> Um, a hidden talent
0: you have? Hmm? A hidden talent you have? <laughs> a hidden talent
1: I have. Um, about from sleeping because that seems. No, <laughs> that's a very good talent. I promise, it's a very good talent. Um, especially when you're taking too many flights, sleeping is best. I think a hidden talent I would have is. I can like I can I can close my eyes and I can hit a tennis ball wherever in the court. Like I I, I know where it's gonna go. I don't know if it's a hidden talent, but it's talent. And I don't have many talents. This is this is all it. I'm not a very talented person. I think that's the lie, but okay. <laughs> I'm the, the biggest, biggest
0: fear.
1: <laughs> the biggest fear in life, you have. The, the biggest fear is like I I think. Mm. I think I just like constantly like fear for my sister and my mom, but I think that's my biggest fear. I don't have phobias or anything. I'm not quite scared of other like things. Like I don't I don't have those fears. Okay, best advice you have received till now? Um this was by a lovely a lovely and mentor, which was this two shall pass. And I think I just apply it to everything. I essay deadline, this two shall pass. An exam, this two shall pass, bad results, this two shall pass. But uh, I think it's a good advice. I
0: think it is a clean I would like to express my deepest gratitude to the speaker for taking out their valuable time and sharing insights with us on the behalf of Girl Up Wings team. I would also like to thank Girl Up India head, Ms. Aditi Arora and Girl Up Campaign for devising the storytelling challenge which gave us this opportunity to interact with wonderful women in our community. We won't stop until we are equal everywhere. Signing off, Girl Up Wings Team.